Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. I'm trying to think of the name now. Welcome <laughs> to the Multifamily Syndication Unscripted podcast with Scott Hollister, Sam Grooms, and Ben Labovich. This is season two, episode two. We're talking about lessons learned. And Ben right. comes to the rescue. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> very organized <laughs> that is so funny you guys have no idea if it wasn't for merging two calendars my wife's and sam's i wouldn't know a thing about what i do on a daily basis <laughs> yeah we basically manage ben's calendar for him nice living large <laughs> let's jump into yep. my highest and best use is to make sure that dishes are clean okay <laughs> syndication and all of this nonsense that's my side hustle my taking the kids to drums and piano and school and yeah. dishes and help some you know some some food prep and things like that. you know that's my highest and best use those things okay Ben doesn't even have bank account access. Well, I have access, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> you have theoretical access. I have theoretical access. Well, it's better that way. I keep losing fucking money. I mean, it's always been that way in my life. You know, it's like, and it's, it's not that I'm losing and I have less. I have more than I think I have because I keep misplacing shit. You know, I don't write it down. I don't, you know, my, my wife does it. Uh, early on in our marriage, she says, she decided, listen, just let me do it. I said, okay. You, you know, it's bad. And then we said, I don't write it down. Yeah. <laughs> last, the, the last time I had anything to do with bookkeeping, I was still writing shit down <laughs> in my little checkbook. Okay. Remember those checkbooks where you had the little table, you know, in the front before you get to the check, you're supposed to write down every check number, every che check amount and stuff. That's the last time I had anything to do with it. Oh, that was old school days. I feel like that's that was, you know, years ago. Well, I don't know. I think that's the older generation, Ben. That's that's when, like, you know, your grandfather wrote down every single detail, you know, since the forties. <laughs> last well, time that I was, filled the oil tank. <laughs> that that was me, except I wasn't any good at it, so we kept missing money. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so so Sam does it for our businesses. My wife does this for my other businesses and her business and our family and everything. I, I have no, you haven't made no, Ben, no ability, no desire, no. You know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I wonder if he's just playing dumb so he doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Wise Shut man. Up, dude. <laughs> don't, don't give all my secrets out. Come on. <laughs> right. Let's roll right into management. So process of 
purchasing it, closing on it. Now we've got to manage the asset. So what's that looked like since the first one? Well, let's talk about the process of purchasing though, because we, we, mm. we kind of talked about uh, the big picture, the, 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 the setting, the, the mood behind the whole thing, right? But why don't we just go through the process of purchasing? Because it's a circus show and it's an interesting thing to discuss. I mean, before we even get to the management, the timelines and, and the, the, the bankers and all the, you know, all the emails going back and forth and all of that, I think people probably want to know what that's really like. And so now with that said, I'm going to go ahead and take a pee break and Sam can walk you through the process. <laughs> do, do we want to go before that, even getting the deal under contract? I mean, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we should. I think a lot of people think they underwrite and then they come up with what they can pay and then that's their LOI. But the first thing we do is when, when a deal comes in is we ask the broker, what's the whisper price? What's your guidance on this? What's it going to be traded for? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this environment where it's a seller's market, they basically dictate what it's going to go for. When the broker tells you it's going for X amount per door, it's going to go for pretty close to that. Um, so or a lot of times over that. Yeah, most likely over so, so the, 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 the process of taking down a property that's on market goes like this. You receive the documentation from the broker. Hey, I got a property for sale. You, now we only buy in Phoenix because we think that we can stay dialed in by being local. I know that a lot of syndicators buy all over the country. That's just not something Sam and I want to do. So we stay here because guess what? If a property looks the right vintage, the right mechanical setup, the right kind of location, the right unit mix, the right unit size, a lot, a lot, a lot of, we have the criteria. If it doesn't meet that criteria, the thing goes in the garbage to begin with. But if it meets the right criteria and you know, it looks like the guidance from the broker is something within a million of where we would think it's logical or reasonable, then we drive by. And the fact is we're local, so we can drive by. And that's one of the benefits of being local. Mm -hmm. We drive by. So then the broker shops the property for three weeks, four weeks, you send out a few emails, you start underwriting, you start putting it through the meat grinder, you start wondering about what kind of CapEx needs done, when was the roof replaced, when was the, you know, whatever, okay? You know, a month goes by, now it's, it's the call for offers date, okay? A week before, the broker will send you an email saying, hey, I've scheduled the call for offers on such and such date. Okay, call for offers in the commercial space initiates with a letter of intent, LOI. LOI is not a binding document on either side, but it is a document that outlines the bullet points of the transaction. How much are you willing to pay? When are you willing to close? How long do you want for the due diligence period? 
what kind of earnest money deposit are you willing to deploy? Are you willing to make any of it non-refundable on day one? Things like that. So it, it outlines the bullet points. Everybody, all of the competitors submit this LOI. And that's where the dog and pony show starts because you know, 15 people submit an LOI. Out of them, probably half of them, the broker doesn't know who they are or the offer is so low, there's no chance it's gonna go anywhere. So half of them get tossed. The other half of the people are invited into the second round. And you make, you sharpen your offer, you make your offer higher, okay? And then that's gonna happen again. And so that's important. So you don't want to go as high as you can on the first round. You want to leave yourself room to go up because it's going right. to be expected of you. There's strategy involved. So you ask yourself, hey, if, if, if the broker is whispering, this thing's going to sell for $14 million, uh, do I make my LOI $14 million or do I make it $13,250 or $13,750? What do I do? Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes you can get the broker to give you that number. What do I need to offer to get into best and final? Cause that's my only goal right now is to get into that second group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes and, they'll do it and sometimes they won't. Yep. And that buys you time to kind of take a deeper dive in the property. Yeah. Well, well not only that allows you to come up in the next round. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By then you should know what you're, cause you've had your three weeks or four weeks to underwrite and massage your underwriting and do all that. So you should know, the property forward and backward. Now we can talk about CapEx. That, that's a wholly separate conversation again, because uh, Sam and I have a strategy that we know how much it's going to cost without even seeing the property, but we can talk about that separately. Uh, but that would be the only thing you don't know is how much work do I got to do to this thing to get my business plan to perform. And you don't know what that dollar amount is to be incorporated into your underwriting clearly because you haven't seen the property aside from driving by it, walking the property, maybe uh, unsolicited visits, so to speak. But, um, you know, this LOI stage, this first round, second round, you know, and then they tell you, okay, this is going to be the last round. It's a telephone conversation. There's four people invited. The seller is going to talk to you. The seller wants to get confidence around how you're going to get the equity, how you're going to get the loan. And you invite your banker who says, I've done X number of deals with these guys. We have several quotes for a loan package. Uh, the seller has received a packet by then from us, uh, which the seller will very often invite or, or request a, a sort of a resume type thing. What have you done? How much have you raised? How many properties have you bought in the last year? Have you ever retraded? Have you ever backed out? Those kinds of questions. So the seller will have that and part of that packet, uh, you know, if we have uh, a, a, an offer from a lender, uh, a, a, they call it a term sheet. It's not something that would end up sticking because you then after you get the contract, you, you negotiate that term sheet with the lender. But it's something that, that tells the seller that you are a known commodity to the lender. You're not doing this 
for the first time and chances are good you can close the loan. And so you invite your mortgage broker to this telephone conversation. Of course, your real estate broker is on this conversation. And then you think that's it, they're gonna decide. <clears throat> and then you get a call from your broker saying, hey, here's the deal. Can you come up 50 grand more? Or something like that. So I feel like the dog and pony show never ends. I mean, it just never ends. It just keeps going and going and going. And recognition of this fact impacts your strategy. I can't tell you the answer on how to behave in this environment and how, how, you know, based on what the kind of the whisper price is, how much do you offer in your initial LOI? I can, there's, no, there's no rule of thumb here. There's no, no rhyme or reason. You just have to stumble in the dark until something works and what works on one deal doesn't work on, on any other deal. But mm -hmm. I'm just describing to you the process, the dynamics of the process. It's a circus. Okay. So we've gotten into that final and best round. What's that look like for you over those deals? Samuel? Well, so hopefully not every deal you're getting is final and best. Um, those are the ones where you're fully on market. You're going through the whole thing. Um, a lot of times what we try to have tried to do, like when we got the first one, is they had a call for offer dates set. But we... Mm specifically ask the broker is the seller willing to take us if we give up his price that he wants now can we skip all of that and that's how we got our first deal we didn't have to compete against everybody directly um so that that would be my first recommendation see if the seller is willing to skip all of that and take if you could offer him the price he wants um but it took a specific kind of a seller yeah absolutely right? he didn't want the dog and pony show he didn't mm. want to go through the extensive due diligence for three or four different groups, ask all of the questions. Uh, you know, he, he, there are some sellers who are like that and I've been that seller and I may be that seller again, uh, where there's a lot more value in getting things done easier and quicker rather than getting an extra $300,000 on the purchase price. Yeah, and I would say that that seller is more the exception but it's worth asking because it got us our first deal. Right. Nice. Um, another, just wait another to skip it is obviously off market completely. The seller's not looking to sell, but the broker has a relationship with them and gives him an offer that they just can't refuse and they just take the sale and they don't want to, it saves everybody a lot of time if they like the price and they don't have to go through the whole getting the, the property ready for market and marketing it and, call for offers best and final everybody would rather skip all of that so they can get a decent price um so that's just getting your broker out there to pound the pavement and find someone willing to sell you a deal um and then the other so we got one property like that one property with other situation we just talked about and then two we went through best and final mm -hmm. well i like the godfather advice get them off where you can't refuse, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. We're going to break well, your kneecaps. Uh, so, so <laughs> whoa, whoa, hey. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's different, there's different mentalities out there. Some people, some investors have a clearly defined parameters on the hurdles as far as their investment returns that they want to hit. Once they hit those hurdles, they, they, you know, they, they don't get greedy. Uh, 
here's what I need. This is this was the plan. I'm very happy having hit those hurdles. I will do a deal with you. There's other sellers who don't want to leave a single cent on the table. The, the, the greedy, greedy sellers. And they're the guys that are going to go through the highest and best. They don't care how easy it is, how, how long it takes, how difficult it is, how, you know, they just want the highest price. Um, so it just depends on what kind of seller you are dealing with and what else is going on in their ecosystem that underpins the reason for the sale. It's funny you say that, but I've never thought about this, but three of our four deals, they were bought in by the seller in 2013. And I think because we bought by someone that had bought it so long ago, they had so much appreciation that they weren't squeezing the pennies out of it. In fact, the only one that squeezed the pennies out of it was the one that bought in 2015. Mm -hmm. And, mm. and they, were, they were probably still struggling to hit their return objectives um, to exactly what they wanted. Um, the other guys, I mean, they far outseated their return objectives that they weren't pitching the pennies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So getting awarded the deal, <clears throat> timeline to close, things to line up. Uh, a lot. So basically the way it works with us is I focus 100% on the fundraise and Sam basically does everything else. I am part to the due diligence. I am there at the due diligence. I communicate with the property management. Um, Sam and I are both involved in understanding the scope of our remodeling. But aside for that, trans excuse me, transactionally, you know, that that's that's business business plan aspect of what we're doing. Uh, once we understand the scope. From that point, Sam takes it and prices in the scope and lines up people and then that's all his wheelhouse. So aside for that, you know, I am 100% focused on the fundraise and Sam is 100% focused on the mechanicals of getting the deal from being accepted to having a complete DD. And I'm involved in that aspect, but that's the only aspect. Everything to do with lawyers, with bankers, with uh, assessors, with uh, appraisers, everything. All of the other mechanical aspects of closing the deal, that's on him. So he can speak to all of that much more so than I can. Um, because I literally, and that's, it's just not my strength and he he's wise enough to recognize that i just make things more difficult than necessary when i get involved in so he just takes them again does he do it on purpose so that he does not involve I'm just <laughs> well and and the way i see it it's it's difficult to say what's more important clearly yeah. without money there's no deal closing right. clearly without bankers and attorneys being on board the deal isn't closing so you need both but yeah, and, and I've thought like at the beginning of what's more important. Now it doesn't even matter. Without both, the deal's not going to be closed. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But I am much more likely to drop the ball 
on some kind of email going out that doesn't go out, it's supposed to go out, or closing title. Or, you know, I, I just, I know this about myself. And so I just recuse myself from that. <laughs> and, you know, Sam takes care of it. That's good. Play to your strengths. So Sam, any systems or processes that you've kind of used and are you looking into, you know, using a higher end software? I know they're expensive, but what, what does that look like that growth and what did you learn from, you know, deal one to deal four? So you can, you can use basically like those, like a project management type software. I haven't, I, I really like Excel. Um, a lot of people don't have the relationship that I have with Excel and, can create anything you need in it. Um, but you can create all the checklists and everything, reminders and everything in Excel. Um, so I handle mostly that. Um, a lot of with the, with the lender side, you can have your mortgage broker go through that whole thing, um, go that whole process with you. Um, they'll get, the lender will give you a list of every document that you need. Um, that's gonna be in Excel. You can just, you, you'll keep a track of everything that you've given them, um, status of everything, when, when everything's coming. Um, but on the other side, there's a lot of things that you have to start setting up immediately that until you've gone through it, it's almost, you, it's, you're not going to have a list or something to go by. Um, it, you're going to learn a lot in that first closing of what you need to get done. So the first, mm -hmm. so some of those things that I have on my list is obviously you get to get your SEC attorney involved immediately to start setting up this indication um, because you can't let's, do anything. Let's, let's plug her. Let's yeah. plug Jillian uh, Sidoti. Yeah. Uh, crowdfunding lawyers, uh, they handle our, all of our SEC stuff. So she, her partner is Jean Trowbridge, who basically wrote the book on syndications uh, from the financial side um, or the, from the law side. Um, and I, I think they're the best uh, syndication attorneys out there. Um, so a lot of the new laws, they have like a reg A plus for crowdfunding. We haven't done that. Um, but she's one of the leading attorneys in the country on it. Um, so if you're going to look for an attorney, I would definitely recommend them. They're based out of California, but they, they work all over the country. Mm. We actually found out on our, after our third deal with them that she's now the attorney for uh, Grant Cardone as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that, that book, it's a whole new business is a phenomenal book. I mean, that's yeah. extremely detail oriented. Yeah. It, it yeah. teaches and you how not to get in trouble with SEC. And then she got on to uh, bigger pockets. Somebody asked, who's your big, biggest client? And she goes like, well, you know, there's Grant Cardone. There's Ben Labovich and Sam Grooms. <laughs> now, I'm not sure why we were in that <laughs> list, but we made the cut. <laughs> I was like, Sam, we can be done. We're done. Um, but uh, the lender will have a Dropbox, an encrypted Dropbox where they will want you to deposit all of the documents. Mm -hmm. The only access to that Dropbox I have is zero. <laughs> I take my, I take my uh, personal financial statement. I send it to Sam saying, don't look at all the zeros, just put it in the Dropbox because they want that. That's it. That's the extent of my involvement with that process. <laughs> oh, so actually the first thing you need to do is you need to get your real estate. So you, you have two different attorneys. You have your syndication attorney setting up all of the, the partnership, um, the stuff with the SEC, the registration, 
um, but you need a real estate attorney to get your PSA and closing through. Um, so the actual transaction. Um, and so you're going to need to go after you get an LOI accepted, you're going to need to go negotiate a PSA. There's going to be a lot of back and forth to get up to two weeks or even more, um, to go through all these business points. Um, so get your real estate attorney involved. Um, again, we found ours on a referral from our lender. Um, and he's been great so far. Uh, and let me, let me pick up on something you said, uh, I, guys, I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're less organized this time around than we were in season one, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a step back. Yes. It takes a week or two to transition from here's an accepted letter of intent. That's the seller saying, I'm going to work with you to here's an fully executed purchase and sale agreement, which is contractually obligatory on both sides. You're raising money during that time. What does that mean? You don't have a signed PSA, but let's say 10 days goes by or two weeks goes by and the LOI is generally going to specify the period of time you must produce a signed PSA. So the seller doesn't want to spend 40 days negotiating the finer points of the purchase and sale contract. They want to, okay, I'm going to choose you. You've got 10 days. Let's agree on everything. Get your attorney engaged with ours. We're, you know, let's agree on everything. Let's go. This is 10 days to two weeks and you're not going to waste this time. You're going to, you're not going to push the property out there the offering memorandum because you don't have it on the contract. So you don't have it under control at this point. So it's kind of dangerous to kind of let the world know, but you are probably going to share it with some key people, key investors and, and begin the process of raising money for this property. Now, at the same time, this is going on very likely you are either already doing some due diligence, physical due diligence on site, if you have an early access agreement, which we can about that later, or you haven't done any due diligence. So how can you push this property out? Well, the level of confidence required in order to basically know that nothing is going to materially change from the LOI to the PSA comes from that access to the PM and to the construction people and to all of the people that essentially Sam and I, when we submit our best and final letter of intent, we are essentially 99.9% .9 sure of what this property is, what we're dealing with, we're not going to be backing out, and our underwriting contains plenty of dollars that are not allocated to anything else so that if something comes up, we can just absorb it into the CapEx budget. So we're essentially, long before we sign the PSA, we're sure that we're not gonna back out, mm -hmm. okay? So how do you get to that point? How do you, you know, and it's a, it's a conversation that goes back again to the relationships that you've established. And this was true on the first deal as just as much as it is on the next deal. 
So this, this isn't, you can't have an excuse of saying, well, I can't do it, this is my first deal, I can't. No, yes, you can. You're gonna have to. Mm -hmm. So logical next step, moving so even, forward. Even before you get the PSA, I mean, there's we start working on, Ben mentioned it, the investment summary, the OM, whatever you wanna call it, the prospectus, that's gonna go out to investors. You're gonna wanna start working on that, that, that during that time, um, start getting quotes from insurance, um, if, if you're pretty sure that you're going to, um, get under contract, we will start forming the LLC, the partnership. Um, cause it, it's easier if you can just use that, the LLC name and the uh, PSA by the time it's finalized, um, start opening bank accounts, just going through that whole process. A lot of managerial tasks are involved. Yeah. And then on my calendar appears 1130. Wells Fargo, yeah. <laughs> Scottsdale, yeah. and that means that we're setting up accounts and my signature is required. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to schlep all the way from Chandler to Scottsdale, like a 40 minute drive in my Tesla. It's a horrible life, Scott, absolutely <laughs> atrocious. So I live in the middle of all of our properties. So I can get to any property within 25 minutes and Ben lives outside of that circle of all the properties. So, so it can take them so some, it's 40 to 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So time to move. <laughs> process of collecting the funds. When's a good timeline before close if you have commitments? We like I like to have well first of all I've never really taken any more than about three weeks to be fully subscribed. Um, and that's if we're raising, you know seven million if we're raising four to five million you know i can i can get that completely done by within two weeks but i certainly want to have all of the money in the accounts by and large uh within a couple of weeks prior to closing yeah mm -hmm. any last minute hiccups between those couple weeks that you've uh, can share with us. Something um, I can help someone tell else. Tell me about hiccups, because I freak <laughs> out at hiccups. So he's just like I'm on a need to know basis. You know, <laughs> if, if 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 something happens paperwork wise, he's dealing with attorneys and brokers and all that stuff. I'm not involved in most of it. Here's the dynamic. I fly off the handle, and I rip people another asshole. And so when Sam say, look at Sam, visualize Sam in a white shirt and a tie and a coat, very, very corporate, very corporate demeanor, very corporate approach to communication, very corporate everything. Sometimes that doesn't cut mustard. And at those times I will get an email because I try to stay on the sidelines for the most part, but when somebody really needs a kick in the ass, whether it's the broker or, you know, whatever, I mean, I don't hold punches and they know that by now. Yeah. So I, Sam, I send, text, I send a text or an email to Ben and say, Ben, can you get involved on this? <laughs> and usually, <laughs> and usually stuff gets settled out pretty quickly when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, listen, all these guys make money when we buy buildings. 
nobody wants to have a silly thing get in the way and, and to damage a relationship. And so my messaging to people is this, my job is to provide you with the equity I need to close and provide you with all the documentation that need, is needed. We have done that between Sam and I, we've done our part. If you fuck this up, we're not doing business again. Beep. And, and, and Ooh, we missed that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't mean to, it, it's not a high horse thing. And that's why I stay out of it for the most part and let Sam handle it very cordially and professionally and everything else. And, and it's not like I'm going to swear on this call or with the email, although sometimes I do, but I am very much more forceful in my delivery. Always have been, always will be. But the thing is, when I think something is not fair, that just completely, I blow gaskets. Mm -hmm. And if I've raised the money and Sam has provided everything and bent over backwards and Sam does, Sam is so extraordinarily organized. He does most of the things that typically, traditionally, other people would do. The closing agents or the brokers, they typically do things for buyers that Sam just handles. So we are an ideal client for all these people. We're easy. We've never been short on equity. We've never taken too long to deliver any kind of paperwork. We do our shit. We get things done. So at that point, I don't think it's fair that we are performing like at this 100% capacity and somebody else is going to jerk us around. And I'm going to tell people that. And if you're going to be like that with us, we're going to go someplace else. And to go back to and, your question, Scott, are you, you're going to get finished, Ben? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Um, so to go back to your question, every deal and every closing, there's going to be something to jeopardize the closing. Um, and, and it's just having the right people on your team that can handle that. Uh, like if we, the last one, Suncrest that we bought, um, we were dealing with a seller who had backed out of a previous closing um, after money was hard, um, but just by a technicality. And I, I think the person was um, two hours late on approving the DD period. And, wow. <laughs> and he kept their money and backed out. And, and, and that was the reputation. And we didn't want that to happen with us. Um, so something came up with title two days before closing. Um, and, and they said that it wasn't going to be cleared until after closing. And the lenders, the lenders working with the seller's attorney, everybody's involved. And nobody can come up with a solution. But the, our mortgage broker, who gets money when we close and doesn't get anything for all of his time that he's invested in, if we don't, gave us a great real estate attorney. And he was able to find a solution to appease everybody, including and title was uh, the escrow company was one really pushing for um, us to have to extend closing, was able to work with their attorneys too to allow us to find some exception uh, to still close on time and then do some post-closing work on title. Um, and, and nobody else could think of that except for the attorney that um, our mortgage broker recommended. And so it's just having people on your team that are going to get you through those hurdles that will come up on every single deal. That's great. Sounds like a keeper. Keep that attorney close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He made his yeah. money on that one. Scott, That's Scott. awesome.
Yeah, and, and I think, Ben, what did we have tied up on that one? 250, 300,000. Um, so imagine if we, if we didn't have that guy I think on our it was team. more. I think it was about 400,000. Was it 400? And so, yeah. so we're talking we about did, a hard deposit? Yeah, yeah, money's yeah. hard. And, and if we yeah. don't close on that day, the seller could walk away and keep that money. Um, and, it, and it looked like that was about to happen. Um, and so without that guy on your team, I mean, you're talking losing 400,000 just like that. And then him going back to market and selling to someone else. Yeah, yeah, so that goes back to all those people who want to syndicate. I mean, let's rewind this. We could have lost four hundred thousand dollars. And that's Ben and I. We, we're not taking. That's not investor money. That's not anybody else. That's Ben and I's capital. Yep, that's the market this, right this, now. This, this you isn't know, for the lighthearted. This isn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, seriously, this isn't. Uh, you got to have intestinal fortitude for this. I don't know if we've ever talked about terms, but usually we go hard day one. Um, we don't have a finance contingency. Um, none of those extra contingencies, really. Um, and sometimes we do a ramp up after DD that we go hard on day one. And then after DD, we go hard on like on another 150, 200,000. Um, that's what you have to do to get deals in this environment. So on that first one, did you have a financing contingency? I don't did think we? we did, did we? I don't think so. No. Okay. I'd have to go back and look at the LOI, but I don't think we did. And that's a direct market result, correct? Yeah. And, and so every market's market. going to be different. Yeah. We're in Phoenix. Yeah. Phoenix is extremely hot, really competitive. Mm -hmm. um, so, so your terms and your offer have to be pretty aggressive. Yeah. Um, so moving past that, getting on that closing day, that first closing, can you remember what it felt like? It, it feels amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I've been working on that for five years. I mean, I've been yeah. studying it and trying to figure it out. And I was back in Ohio and, and then I moved to Arizona. I mean, it was a long, long, long process for me of wrapping my head around all this and, and, and trying. So yeah, it was. Um, it, so you just put me back in the uh, the closing day, and actually, it just made me think of what I've learned after that first deal. Do not send your wire the last day. You oh, yeah. you might they don't give you the settlement statement until the last day, so you don't know exactly how much you need to close until that final day, maybe even hour before. But don't wait till then to send your wire. So now I send my wire a day or two in advance, and I just send an extra five hundred thousand, and they can refund me after closing. So on the, the first deal, um, it was, we were closing on my daughter's birthday. So we were up in North, every, we, everything was done on our end, um, except the wire. So we, we were staying up in North Scottsdale for the Picture weekend. Picture this, Sam's in the t-shirt <laughs> and swim trunks, yeah. dripping water I mean, all the, over yeah. Wells Fargo uh, uh, Bank. Standing well, there, oh my God. Back up, so I'm, we're in the lazy river, hanging out, and then I'm waiting for the bank to open. So the bank opens at nine. I get out and I say, I'll be back. So I head to the bank to wire all the money. Um, the, the, there's a regional manager for banks that have to approve a large wire like that. Well, she was in a meeting all day, but nobody said this. So I, I, I submit the wires, nine o'clock. I think there's, it's definitely gonna make it by 2 p.m. So 1.30 comes around. And the wire hasn't gone through, and everybody is freaking out. I have to. We get out of the pool. We're checking out that day. So my wife, my daughter, we we go back to the bank to figure out what's happening. I couldn't get a hold of anybody over the phone. 
Um, and so we're sitting in there, yeah, in our swim trunks, still wet, figuring out trying to rush this wire through. Um, turns out she was in a meeting. Um, nobody had went and got her to ask her to approve this wire. Um, and, and so you, 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 my lesson was don't wait until the last minute. But I also, I let them know that it has to go through that day. And it, I ask if there's anybody in a meeting, who's, who needs to approve this and what are they doing? Are they gonna be able to approve it now? Or um, are they gonna have to wait? And, and so these are the, something you would never think about, but almost end, <laughs> ruined our first closing. So that, yeah. <laughs> so the Good moral of the story is always something, right? Always yeah. something oh, yeah. at the last minute. And, uh, really, really important to have, you know what, Scott, I do not, I've never been in a corporate setting. I've never had a job like that. And there's, there's, there's politics involved in it, but there's also techniques of how you navigate the corporate environment. I, I, I'm completely, I mean, it blows my mind how stupid some of that shit is, but that's not the point. Whether I think it's stupid or not, I would still have to do it. And the thing is, I'm so lucky that Sam can do it. He knows it. He's lived it. He's been there. And he has the patience and understands how to communicate with people in that type of a setting. That's what it takes. So, you know, if you are out there like me and you have a portfolio of property you've built up over the last 10 years, and you've done well as a landlord, you are graduating onto syndication, you wanna do bigger deals, you wanna raise money. If you don't have corporate experience, partner with somebody who does, you will have to deal with people bred in corporate environment. And to us, guys like you and me, this may be foreign, completely foreign and infuriatingly frustrating. So make sure you have somebody on your team who can handle that. Yep. Mm -hmm. So what'd you guys do? How'd you celebrate? <laughs> so after every closing, Ben and I go to a really nice steakhouse here in uh, Scottsdale um, and celebrate with our wives. Nice. But we, we did, we did that, um, that cruise dinner, didn't we? Uh, no, was, uh, no, that was a different event. I think our, or maybe it was. I think it was. Or did we go to the, the, the steakhouse at the Phoenician for our first one? Oh, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. We, you we, celebrate we celebrate with some way. kind of, we, yeah, some kind of steak dinner. Um, now we go to uh, Mastro's City Hall um, here at Scottsdale. Which is, which is I think, uh, what, Michelin two star? Fabulous. Yeah, I mean, that, that place is amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. So we get a Wagyu steak. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Caviar. Oh yeah. <laughs> ben, Ben's not kidding. I think it was after Ridgepoint closing. We ordered caviar. I had no idea how much caviar was. It was like three oh, it's expensive. dollars it, it's, for, for a little. It was it was four hundred and fifty bucks for this tiny <laughs> this little tiny jar. <laughs> was it worth it? Oh yeah. It's really I, I, well, I haven't ordered it since, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, they, but they don't tell you the price for a reason. Smart. <laughs> but no, that, that's one of those restaurants. You don't go there. 
if you're not prepared to spend fifteen hundred dollars for, yeah. for a party of four. I mean, that's yeah. just it's one of those. But it's completely worth it. Like if you have the means, it's it's an experience. The kind of service you get there, the kind of food you get there. I mean, it's you can't. Yeah. It is what it is. There are some restaurants that just stand out like that, and this is one of them. So, and it's a special and, occasion type of thing. Yeah, and it's and it's a big expense, but we we do it after every closing, um, and I think it's good to do, even though it's a large expense, um, just to celebrate a little bit. Yeah, you got to celebrate the wins. Yeah, hundred percent. So, you've closed, celebrated. What's that next day look like on that first close? Was it like drinking from a wa- water hose, or is it? You know, you had systems and processes. You knew what you needed to do. We didn't know the first one. The first <laughs> one we, didn't, we didn't know. Um, you know, I think obviously the, the property takeover doesn't have as much to do with us. It's the PM. So timing the closing with when we officially quote unquote get the keys to the property and manning that office and putting somebody in place with maintenance and things like that. Um, it's always challenging, always tricky. Now we buy destabilized assets and Sam alluded to this because, you know, we buy assets that people purchased at the bottom of the market for them. They didn't need to do CapEx um, mm-hmm. because they knew that the market would give them an exit. So they didn't need to do the value add. The market was their value add. They're some of the most sophisticated, astute investors. So they they come in when everybody's running with the tail between the legs. These guys have the balls to come in. But the benefit of doing that is that we have all this meat on the bone because they did nothing. That wasn't their business plan. They didn't allocate money to do this stuff. They just came in. They, They kept the thing kind of crawling along the bottom. And then the cap rates went down, they compressed. And so there they go with million dollars, millions of dollars of equity simply because they bought at a much higher capitalization rate, which wasn't that much higher actually, but it makes a big difference. In that time also rents have gone up dramatically, clearly over the last uh, four or five years. And so, so these people have millions of dollars of equity and they leave us the meat on the bone to come in and buy the property. What does it mean when you're buying a property where the owner walked into the property with the expressed business plan of doing nothing, just mm. band-aiding the thing uh, as, as, as little as possible to keep it occupied so he could, you know, just hold on to it and sell it. You know, it, it's, it's 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 a mess every time you get in it's a mess from a green water in the pool to lack of applications and qualifying processes for tenants and rent rolls not matching and this and that i mean it's it's a mess and so (laughs) to to illustrate your point at suncrest the day we closed was the biggest rains the valley had had here in Phoenix in like two to three years. And so we just had nonstop complaints on roof leaks and <laughs> it, it was just band-aiding the property for that first week or so. Yeah. And of course, you know, replacement of the roof is part of our scope and things of that nature. But 
it takes time to kind of get up to speed. Now, you know, taking over the office and manning the office and trying to figure out who's in the property and why, because listen, you don't even know. You're buying a cat in a bag. But that begs a very interesting conversation. If you are not buying a bag, uh, a black bag job, then you're buying a stabilized property. If you're buying a stabilized property, you don't have any value add or not much. If you don't have much value add and you're at the top of the market, what the hell are you doing? What's your exit? Okay, so we can talk about risk and we can say, yeah, because that's our seller profile, that's our seller avatar, and that means that our property is going to be uh, somewhat of a, of a band-aided kind of disaster zone. It's true. The takeover is going to be a bloodbath. It's true. But what it does do is it offers us an opportunity to say, we already know it's a disaster zone, so we might as well plan on CapEx on everything across the board. So at the end, we know what we're going to have. So when we talk about safety, you know, what's safer coming in with an extraordinarily large CapEx uh, budget and reserves uh, and know that everything's going to go wrong and you're going to fix it and then you'll know what you have or coming into something more stabilized, not incorporating very much CapEx to begin with, not having as much reserve to begin with, but because it's stabilized, you can't afford either because you've got to pay more for the property because guess what? It's stabilized property. And then when things do go wrong, are you well enough capitalized to handle it? So it's, it's a very interesting strategic business plan, strategic conversation, but that's what we do. That's one of the benefits of what we do is we know everything's going to have to be replaced. And so we have the money up front to do it. But Sounds the first good. couple of weeks is fun. Yeah. And, and we can actually go in when the management episode, we can go into more detail about that. The first couple yeah. of weeks. Sounds good. Ben, why don't you take us out? Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Multifamily Syndication Unscripted podcast with Scott Hollister, Sam Grooms, and Ben Leibovich. We're in season two. This was episode two. We are unwrapping our year's worth of experience of having purchased $50 million, uh, close to 500 units in one year, trying to give you perspective on the madhouse that is the life of Sam Labovich, uh, Sam Labovich, Sam Grubin, <laughs> and We've Labovich. now morphed into one person. We've now morphed. <laughs> that happened. It's a Freudian slip. Did you yeah. notice? <laughs> I noticed. My life don't belong to me anymore. Forget yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, we will see you in the next show. I promise we'll be wearing the same clothing because we're recording it in three minutes. Talk soon. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted.